Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Joyce Carol Oates i samtal med Hans-Ola Bränner, NRK. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Well, unnecessary to say, it is one of the greatest names on the world's literary stage who is here today, and this must be one of the most long-awaited visits by an author to Sweden ever. Joyce Carol Oates, uh, I know that you have been having interviews yesterday and today, but I just wondered, have you had a chance to do anything else while in Sweden? Oh yes, we, we walked around. There were some moments when it wasn't raining, and we, <laughs> we started out with great optimism and immediately started pouring, but we went to the wonderful Museum of Modern Art, and it's really an excellent collection. As I say to my husband, and it's unusual in that every, almost everything in it is, is a work of distinction. And often in museums there are whole wings that have second or third rate art, but this is really impressive. I thought particularly the photography was really, really striking and, and memorable. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think we'll start to talk about your journals, uh, which recently have been published in Sweden. On August 31st, 1979, you write in the journal that it isn't supposed to interest anyone but yourself. And 30 years later, it's being read by thousands and thousands of people. How do you feel about that? Well, it is, it is bizarre. And then so many things happened in my life that seem unexpected and surreal that um, I don't know how I feel about it. I, when, I, when I first began writing it, I was in London, a very dreary and dark city where the sun barely rose at all in the winter. Of course, I guess in Stockholm it may be the same way. It's probably even, even more northerly here, but anyway, I was not used to that and was suffering some sort of light deprivation, some neurological deficit of some kind. So I felt really homesick. And I think that impetus and motivation for, of, of homesickness is very much, uh, it's very elemental somehow in the human spirit leading to, to any kind of art. You know, you feel really lonely. So I, th- I started a novel, in, in fact, this Do With Me What You Will, which was just, just uh, mentioned a few, a few minutes ago, oddly enough. Do With Me What You Will is set in Detroit, so I was evoking that city. And then my journal was to keep in contact with my deepest self, which I felt was being evaporated or, or um, just sort of lost in, in this place where I didn't know anyone, I wasn't, I wasn't working. I've come from a family where everyone worked all the time. We had a small farm, and my father also worked in a factory. So I sort of come from the working class where we work, and we're sort of like work dogs, you know, the dogs that are always wanting to do something, like a collie or a husky. Uh, it's not an indolent little lap dog that just lies there looking beautiful, but these dogs are always working, and so I guess I felt not teaching that it was a kind of idle, idle, isolated life. And so by writing the journal, I was getting back to my deepest self. And subsequently, I really felt that it was a fascinating intellectual and psychological discipline, which I actually recommend for anyone, any, any time. Hmm. Yeah, what, what, what is the reward in a longer scope? 
I'm not sure what the reward is. I think to look back and to, to see what one was doing some years ago. If I open the book, I'm sort of astonished and even embarrassed that I have <laughs> exactly the same thoughts, that I haven't changed much. <laughs> and I'm always worrying over, over something that's not going right or the writing isn't very good. And then many a time I'm working on something so long in the journal, again, it's almost embarrassing because some of these no novels, one or two of the novels, I, did, I didn't publish. I finished it, revised it, looked at it, and finally decided that I didn't want to publish it. So in the journal, you see, I'm, I'm like somebody going, walking toward, very, you know, kind of walking diligently or, or doggedly toward the edge of a precipice about to fall over. And you feel so, so sad about seeing that and knowing that it will come to nothing. So for me, looking at the journal has many things in it that are painful and um, maybe humiliating, but they're very honest. I made a pact with myself that I would, I would never censor it and I would never revise it. So it's like the ant it's antithetical to my written, uh, my fiction, which is very polished and structured and revised. This is like a repository of spontaneous and impulsive thoughts which I can't retract. But still pretty well written, I'd say. I don't know. I, I'm afraid to read it. I sort of look at it, and then I, I turn away. There are with embarrassing things in there, like, like what I made for dinner one night. I thought, <laughs> I, somebody else edited it, so maybe, he, maybe it's his, his fault. I sort of bl blame this other person. Mm. But when this idea of publishing the journal was uh, introduced to you for the first time, what do you think then? I had a little book called The Faith of a Writer, which is a memoir of approach to talking about writing. The Faith of a Writer, and each of the little essays is pretty much from a personal point of view. So my publisher and editor at Echo, Echo Press in New York City wanted to do another book like that, sort of a writer's book, like a writer's journal. And I didn't have anything quite like that. So I said, well, maybe we could excerpt from this 4,000-page you know, saga of my journals. Maybe someone could look through it and take out material that seemed relevant for the writer's life. And so this was the consequence. Hmm. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people read famous people's journals in order to read the malicious and terrible things about other famous people. But this one's so kind. I mean, is it heavily... Well, don't say that. <laughs> Nobody will want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only kind, of course, but... <laughs> Most of the time, it's pretty kind. Is it heavily revised, or are you sh such a kind oh, person? Oh, no, no, I didn't, I didn't revise it at all. Well, most, most of my f friends and people I meet are really nice people, and <laughs> I'm very <laughs> sympathetic with people. Often in my fiction, a critic or a reader will say, how could you write about this terrible, deplorable person? And I feel really hurt because I kind of like that person. <laughs> I think humanity is very vast, and there's room for all kinds of people. So. I rarely am critical of anyone. I think I had a few critical lines in there of some people. I really wish I, wish I hadn't now. Uh, it's sort of embarrassing because then you meet those people and get to know them. I hope they hadn't read that. But most of the people you read uh, write bad things about are dead, I've checked. Oh, well, it's not my fault. Yeah. Just, that just sort of happened by itself. Uh, who are you thinking of? Well. 
Well, uh, you're describing uh, an apartment in New York, uh -huh. uh, which was very dusty and terrible, uh, an editor of yours. And I think oh. she would be a hundred and something if she still oh. was alive. Is that in there? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh I didn't know that was in there. I, uh, I, I live a lot of my life in, try, in denial. I think if, if you have that expression in, uh, in in Swedish, you know, it sort of means not not acknowledging about half of reality. So, when I got the page proofs, I sort of looked at them in a way. But I have a lot of faith in my editor, the editor Greg Johnson, who was my biographer as well, as well. He he had been a young man when he started the project, and then he sort of got, <laughs> I mean, don't, he got a little older, he's just sort of middle age now. He went to Syracuse University where my archives are, and I think he just had sort of a, tra a trauma. We saw all these manuscripts, not only the <laughs> manuscripts, but all the re revisions and the drafts, and he, I think it was sort of like a nightmare experience for him. And I had a lot of faith in him, so if he put something about that apartment in there, I guess I just didn't notice it. Oh, I'm sorry to remind you, but uh, <laughs> have you got any other reactions from people who are actually in the journal? Uh, I don't. Well, I'm afraid to read some of the mail that I get, so I have a big bag of mail. Um, uh, any reactions? I, I don't really remember. I mean, this is really a bad thing to say. I'm not sure that I got any reactions. Mm. Well, I have a lot of nice things in there, like John Updike. You know, many, many entries for John Updike, and I really miss him so much. Everything about John is very positive and very friendly and, and very kindly. He had a wonderful sense of humor, and we had a, a, a wonderful exchange of letters, and the letters, uh, of course, are not in the journal. In fact, it's very sad. I had wanted to edit John's letters, but his widow will, doesn't, will not allow any of his letters to be published, ever. <laughs> and they are beautiful, kindly, gracious letters with wit and uh, wisdom, and, and they will never, um, never be published. So it was a pleasure to write about people like that. And I have many writer friends. This ends in 1982. So it doesn't encompass the people whom I know now. I'm many, many wonderful writer friends now. Richard Ford, I think, has been here. Edmund White may have been here. Salman Rushdie was recently here. And Philip Roth. And so those people belong to more recent. Though Philip Roth is in that, hmm. actually. He's in that. Yeah, you meet him for the first time, I guess, the first in this time, journal. Yeah, yeah, Philip, yes. Hmm. Philip had written to me, and he said that he thought we should meet. He sent me a little postcard, and so we, we actually met. But uh, will there be more? Will you publish more of your journal? Oh, I don't know. Maybe someday. It's so embarrassing. Um, I don't know. Maybe. But if you read it all through, which you haven't done, I understand. I can't. Nobody could read it all through. <laughs> Did you? Of course. Did you read it all through? Of course. I had to oh. do that. We had to do that. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very oh, much. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. you kept turning the pages, waiting for something vicious and malicious, and it never came, you know. That's what I got all over with. But, but I get the feeling that I know you pretty well. Uh, but still, you say from time to time in the journal that you're afraid that it doesn't give an adequate um, impression of you. So I wonder, what is left out? What is it that you don't write about? Well, all the time, just about I was writing that, I was teaching at, at University of Windsor. Then I came to Princeton in 1978. 
and I teach workshops at, at Princeton. But when I was at Windsor, I had these large classes, a sort of some were almost like lecture classes, though I didn't lecture, but they were sort of discussion. And the teaching was really wonderful. It was very scintillating, very exciting, and funny, and a lot of uh, personalities. And that sort of spontaneous personality can never be put into a book. It's like the conversation, uh, allegedly, of Swinburne. Oscar Wilde, who was quite brilliant, actually, as a writer, they say that as a conversationalist, he and Swinburne were just so brilliant. You know, you can't really capture that. So a lot of my personality never gets into, into print. Yeah. It's a more dour or tragic personality. Uh, Robert Lowell said that when, when we're happy, we don't write, usually. Happiness is something that, that evaporates. Much of poetry and much of art is, is serious or even tragic. And the effervescence or the lightness of playfulness is, tends to be lost. Yeah, because there are, for example, lots of dinner parties in this book. Lots of dinner parties, yes. Yeah. And I'm very curious about what you're talking about at those dinner parties. Yes, yes. It's one of these situations where <laughs> the dinner parties are hilarious and everybody's very witty. But if you had a transcript, you'd say, what? <laughs> These people are supposed to be at Princeton, you know. That's the way. Um, that's the way it is, you know. People are when you're. It's a live situation. It's very, very uh, alluring, even hilarious. But if it's written down, it, it's really nothing at all. Mm. But do you ever talk about the weather in those dinner parties? Uh, incessantly. Mm. For the last eight or nine or ten, however many years it was, they talked relentlessly about Bush and Cheney. Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld, over and over again. I mean, I, I dislike them as much as anybody else, but all my friends in Princeton are very liberal and very left-wing and very, very brilliant, you know. And the men were all very, very macho <laughs> community, all really, really angry about the administration. And so it's not that, not that I didn't agree with them, but it was very relentless. So much of it was political. And then for a long time, I mean really, really long time, the campaigns, the, uh, the primaries that went on for like 16 years, as Obama and Hillary, <laughs> well, who's ahead? Hillary, half the, uh, half the population was for Hillary and other half for Obama. And they, did, they were angry at each other and they were really not, you know, not speaking to each other. And then after a while, Hillary wasn't doing so well and then Obama started doing well. Then everybody jumped on the other bandwagon, <laughs> all for Obama. And then um, it just went on for a long time. Mm. And then the other primary, but I won't go into it. So that's what they talked about mm. in, in between talking about the weather and you know, other kinds of gossip, but it's very heavily politicized. Mm. I th I've often thought that the United States is somewhat lunatic. I somewhat, you know, don't quote me, just not completely lunatic. But we had that election some years ago where Kerry lost, and everybody thought Kerry was winning. We went to victory parties where the, the, the returns were coming in, and, and then as the, as the evening went on, you know, people were getting more and more depressed and terrified, and one person literally slid down the seat, and then everybody crept away home because Bush had won. And I, the next day I went to the university and I said, it doesn't matter, life is absurd. Mm. I said to my friends, it's completely lunatic, you know, the whole country's crazy. And, and so, um, I don't know, what, why are we talking about this? I don't want to, <laughs> I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. It's, it's the one subject that I actually do not want to talk mm. about. So. 
I can't believe I'm talking about it. But just let me come with, uh, on June 20th, 1975, I think that you're almost prophetic in terms of Obama, because you've written, Americans tolerate and even encourage change, which is superficial, like fashions in clothes or music, perhaps in order to maintain the status quo on another level. Wow. <laughs> That's profound. I don't know what it means. Uh, well, Obama is not change on the is not the is not the status quo. I don't think. I think he's quite unique. I think he's experiment. He's also a brilliant experiment, and who knows what will happen. He is a, he is also a politician, though, hmm. and politics is the art of compromise. So maybe he'll he won't um, be that different. I'm not sure. This book is also a very beautiful portrayal of your parents, I'd say. Oh, yes. Yeah, the entries yes. about them are so beautiful and so emotional. And even though you spend a lot of time writing, uh, you, you've always time for them, it seems. Oh, yes, I was very close to my parents. Yes, um, yes, and my, my grandparents also. Mm -hmm. Could yes. you tell a little about your childhood environment, about the one-room schoolhouse? <laughs> about the one-room schoolhouse, it sounds like a violin or something <laughs> like that. Uh, uh, well, my mother went to the same one-room schoolhouse. In the United States, not that many one-room schoolhouses remain any longer. They're sort of like dinosaur era or something. <laughs> and people would look at me with pity and terror, and they say, went to a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, we, we trudged through the snow. I mean, it was upstate New York, it was the snow belt. And it was not only that I went to the one-room schoolhouse, but there was no school buses. There was, no, there was no social fabric. I mean, it was just like the wilderness. It was like Darwinian horror. And we trudged through the mud, and we trudged through the snow, and got to this one-room schoolhouse. It was barely heated. And there were all these uh, other students there. And when I was, one, when I was a little girl, and I had to trudge through the snow. <laughs> I, I'm trying to be funny about this because it's so maudlin, you know, trudging through the snow and getting to the one-room schoolhouse. It was barely heated, and then we had uh, just a little, a little library, like a shelf of books, and the roof was leaking, and the stove was like a potbelly, wood-burning stove, and the snow was blowing up against the windows, and uh, there were outhouses in back, <laughs> and it was pretty, pretty horrible and horrific, but people think it was romantic. And then there were all these other students, including these huge boys, they were hulking, hulking boys before women's liberation when boys were really, really mean and nasty about girls. And they, they were in school because they had to be in school till they were 16. And they were, they were harassing the younger, the younger children. And that's where I learned all about life. I learned that life is this Darwinian struggle. And I learned to run. And they would say, Joyce runs like a deer. Let's chase <laughs> Joyce. You know, chasing Joyce. <laughs> Sorry, chasing Joyce. That was recess. Mm. Recess was chasing Joyce around. <laughs> but I actually learned to run quite, mm. quite rapidly. Yeah, and you kept running, right? Yeah, and there was uh, different kinds of abuse and harassment <laughs> and, you know, things like that. Mm. So don't ask me about my dark vision because it all came out of the one-room schoolhouse. Yeah, I see. I won't. But there was a heroine among you, this Mrs. Dietz, I think you... Yes, she was, was the teacher. And when I look back upon it, I just don't know how she did it. She was very tall. She was like an Amazon. She not only taught uh, eight grades 
of varying degrees of intellectual ability, I must say, from the hulking boys to the eager little girls. She taught penmanship. We learned to write very, very well, those of us who learned to write at all. She did the, she did the stove. She shoveled the, the coal. She kept discipline. But I think she gave up on what happened outside in the recess. I think she just couldn't handle that. Because once I, I did tell my parents I was being bad, badly, uh, um, I don't know what, it was just, maybe it's amnesia or something, things went on. So I said to my parents, I was crying maybe, I was really a little girl, and I said I just didn't want to go back to school anymore, though I love the books, but I was being so harassed by these big boys. So my parents came to Mrs. Dietz, and I remember these three adults were having some sort of a conference, I was sitting there, and I heard Mrs. Dietz say, but they like Joyce. So that was the answer, you know, why they were chasing Joyce all around, pulling my curls and pulling me upside down or knocking, putting me in a mud puddle or whatever, whatever they did. Uh, but they like Joyce. So um, I'm really sorry we're on this topic. Can I just sort of take it back, you know, and, and delete it or something? Yeah, we'll skip the schoolhouse now. Yeah, okay, yes. And we'll talk about, because this book is a portrayal of a hardworking uh, writer as well. And we, on, I think it's on January uh, 1975, you note that you've started to write in a completely new way. Do you remember what that was about? <laughs> uh, could you give me a hint? Yeah, I can. <laughs> because if I understood it correctly, ahead of that, you were paying too much attention and had too much respect for the first draft. And then you start writing more like revising oh, and rewriting. Oh, yes, 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 yeah. yes. Yes, I used to do a complete first draft and then uh, revise that. But then I started revising each chapter and each page and then finally each paragraph and each sentence, which is kind of insane. And so I'm at that point now where I'm revising titles. I sort of can't get beyond the title. But I, I write in longhand, so I have these different scraps of paper. My husband has sort of seen them. I think he looks over and he says, I'm doing these, these things in longhand, and I cross them out. So it sort of is the new way of writing, but I'm not sure that it's a good way of writing. You're not sure? No, I'm not sure it's a good way of writing. Nebelkoff used to write on note cards. He would write the note cards and then arrange them in a way that had a great deal of meaning for him. And I think it was... Each writer has a special mode of insanity. There's one way that you write that nobody else could do, that, and you shouldn't do either, but it's the one way that you've, you've, you've found yourself doing. And nobody can understand why, for instance, James Joyce spent so much time on Finnegan's Wake. And when he finished it, well, his life was finished, basically, but he then thought he would write a, a novella, a simple love story, but he didn't live to write that. Finnegan's Wake and, and some of the longer late work of Norman Mailer and some other long late novels, uh, William Gass possibly would be in this category, uh, William Gaddis, you, you start writing in a way that is not in a way hospitable somehow to your own self. You start writing in a way that is, is painful or psychologically arduous. And I wanted to get away from that by writing the long, in, in longhand and, and doing the scenes in a kind of rapid way and having it then uh, something I could, re I could arrange instead of doing a first draft, which is somewhat, somewhat difficult. 
But how much time do you spend revising and rewriting? 99% of the time revising. Um, and less and less uh, time with the, fret, with the new material. It's gotten to the point of uh, completely diminishing returns. <laughs> so the first thing you write must be written incredibly fast then, or? Lightning fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'd have to change it right away. Yeah. Well, I may be exaggerating a little. I've, I have written some stories like in a few days. Mm. And I'm able to write something a little faster. But could you explain what happens to the text when you rewrite it and rewrite it? I must assume it's getting better then. Well, one would like to assume that. <laughs> um, it's a magical kind of thing. Uh, some writing will get more leaden and be unable to move. But, but what I'm being a little bit facetious in this because it's really hard to talk about. It's such a private thing. And, and hard to talk about, actually. There are probably writers in the audience, and you know, it's sort of a magical thing. And one day you wake up in the morning and you feel as if you can begin writing, and, and then a sentence will come out, and then it sort of starts to move. Maybe you have this experience. But up until that point, you're sort of mired in mud. You can't really move, and it's feel, a feeling of frustration and despondency. But I've learned to stay with it, and then at, there's some point where you can, where you can move a little faster. Mm. And then finally, after some, the miracle is, you may have an actual manuscript of, of some pages. I take the manuscript and I go to some other room in the house and I read it then rapidly as if I were a reader. And I may take notes on it. And then I say, well, it wasn't that bad. And the pacing, because now you're reading for the pacing. When you write, you're writing for something else, but then when you're reading, you're reading for the pacing. And that can be a kind of a nice experience, and it's a little later on. Then I often put a novel away. The Gravedigger's Daughter was, to me, a monumental emotional effort. So I put that away then for about 18 months in a drawer. I couldn't really face it, and I didn't want to deal with it. I finished it, and I put it away in a drawer, and then I hoped that I would live long enough to bring it out again. And then when I brought it out after 18 months, I reread it, and I thought, I was excited about it. So I did a little more revision, and then I sent it off. Hmm. But I have another novel called My Sister, My Love, The Intimate Story of Skylar Rampike. I wrote that a little more rapidly, and that belongs to a different kind of uh, first-person narration. And I spent a long time running. I did a lot of running. I would write in the morning, and I'd go running in the afternoon. Then in the winter, we belonged to a fitness center, and I would go to this fitness center and run on the treadmill. And I'd run very rapidly in a kind of trance of oblivion. And as I ran for about an hour, I would scroll back and see all the, the chapters that I, the chapter I'd written and kind of go over it and, and proofread it and think about it. Then when I was done with that, I would hurry to another room in the fitness center and I'd take scrap paper <laughs> and I'd write down on the backs of coupons and then magazines and things. I never seemed to bring any writing, uh, any, any paper along as I was writing all this stuff. <laughs> all the thoughts I had about that, I remember it's all tied in with the fitness center. So in my book of stories, Dear Husband, there's a story called Suicide by Fitness Center <laughs> about a woman who's running on this treadmill and she's kind of insane and demented. And she, the, the, you know, uh, sometimes, sometimes a treadmill will, will um, go berserk and throw you against the wall. It actually can happen. You get thrown against the wall. That happens, that happens to her. 
It may have happened to me, I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> so after the novel was finished, I, I quit the fitness center. I could not go in it anymore. And all these memories of the demented uh, hours of running on the treadmill. <laughs> what a vision, yeah. You were leading in me saying the really uh, absurd things I've, that I've never said before in front of anybody. Yes. Uh, uh, it's really, and he has such an innocent look. Yeah. <laughs> Very boyish and ingenuous. It's led me to say the most of, uh, amazing things. I can't even go home anymore. <laughs> but what impresses me with this book is. Uh, uh oh. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a pitcher is winding up, you know. You think it'll be a softball, but it's going to be a hardball. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a softball, actually, because uh, you, even though it takes a long time for you to find the voice. You, you spend a lot of time finding the voice. Yes. Uh, and it takes weeks without you losing faith in the idea. I mean, very many people would have given up before, but you well, don't. Well, it may be the, same, the, the sensible thing would be to give up. I don't know. I've often felt, you know, maybe I keep on going too long and maybe the same thing would be to give up. I don't know. You mentioned the gravedigger's daughter. No, I was just joking. Yeah, I was saying. Yes, I'm sorry. No, I don't, I don't seem able to give up. I don't seem able to give up. Now, I wrote a book on boxing, and I know it's considered so barbaric in Sweden. And it's, it's America's barbaric. I mean, what, what can you say? It's a barbaric nation. But it's, 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 it's us, and we, we are Americans. But in, in America, uh, boxing had a whole history and a, and a tradition. And there are certain boxers who can only go forward like Jack Dempsey. They, they, they never learn to do anything except go forward as a certain kind of, uh, of personality. I can't seem to go backward or to quit. I, I, I find it very terrifying to think of giving up on something. So I get very nervous. To think of giving up seems like the end. And I feel, well, I'll never, I'll never finish anything again. So I keep on going with material sometimes that it doesn't seem to me that it's really working that well, but I just keep on working away at it till finally I try to get it to some level where it's, um, it's plausible and, and seems to work. Hmm. So you never give up? Well, I don't give up, but when I'm finished with the whole work, I may then decide that I don't like it that much. Because I put it in a drawer for a year, and then I write on something else. And I may feel that that, uh, that work doesn't, I don't really like it that much. So, there are several novels of mine that are in my archives, and people say, when are you going to publish them, because they found out about them, and I, I don't really want to publish them. One I actually threw out. <laughs> I threw it out, but there was a copy of it somewhere. <laughs> and, and it's actually in the archive, <laughs> and I can't get back. I don't know how that happened. You can't get a card or something to get in there? Uh, no, no, I, d I don't think, no, I think it's given, you know, you donate your papers, you can't rush back and take them back again. And Samuel Beckett had sold something for $500, then he became famous, you know. You can't really go back and take these things out of the library. <laughs> but these uh, ones that you haven't published, do they have anything in common? Is it possible to say, why you won't publish um, those? I don't know. I, I, well, something else came along that interests me more. There's a whole period in my life when I was completely enthralled by the idea of realism. Just the whole idea of realism 
where you would be, you would create a text that would absolutely replicate experience without any fabrication and have a kind of shimmering impressionistic uh, authenticity to the moment. And I felt just so fascinated by the possibilities and I wrote novel after novel in this, in this phase. So something else I might have done that, that didn't have that same standard, I would not have felt so much sympathy for. You must remember this is in that, in the, in that category and uh, do with me what you will, them. A lot of novels that are ultra-realistic. And if I have street names in the city of Detroit or Lockport, New York, uh, they're true. I mean, they're at, you could go there and you could sort of see the absolute, absolute place that's there. Then I had a reaction against that and I wanted to write about surreal landscapes. And I wanted to write about a kind of metaphoric reality that wasn't literal. And I have a whole series of novels in this sort of Gothic tradition. Belfleur and A Bloodsmoor Romance and Mysteries of Winterthur and another one called Crosswick's Horror. And the fourth one I didn't publish. It's still, I've, I have it at home. I was looking at it just a few weeks ago, seeing that maybe I could revise it or do something with it. But for, for months and months and years, I was enthralled to the unconscious and to, to uh, images that were surreal. And then I had a reaction against that and, and had short novels, short novels like Solstice. Uh, Black Water is a novel, a novella that I wanted to write like a ballad. I wanted to write like a musical ballad that always had the same refrain, but uh, with incremental repetition. Something like that could only be short. You can't have 500 pages. It has to be really, really, really short. And I have a number of short novels that I, I just love writing in that form. Then I maybe have a reaction against that and write a long novel. Mm -hmm. These things are, are, are intuitive mm -hmm. and not really rational. But is it possible to compare your recent novels with the early ones and see some big changes in, in that way? Could you compare them in any way? The Gravedigger's Daughter is very much related to a garden of earthly delights, and to them. It's because the gravedigger's daughter carries a kind of family saga, um, again, the veracity and based upon family experience, and an absolute fidelity to atmosphere and place. And I really love writing novels like that because I shut my eyes and I'm right in the place. I'm right in the town. I'm right in the, in the field. I sort of see the, the canal. To me, it's very, very real, very real. So Gravedigger's Daughter is very recent, but it, it's related to these other novels. Then My Sister, My Love, Intimate Story of Skylar Rampai, is re related to expensive people. It's a first-person narration that's um, very hyperbolic and very um, with footnotes and things like that. It's a self-reflective text. And it has a lot of sociological context, and it's very, very much about exploitation of children in America. But it's, it's related to expensive people, which is way back in the 1960s. So these novels have a kind of relationship. Mm. Then the next novel I'm writing is in this realistic vein. Mm. But then a novel I want to write, which I can't seem to do, is a, a, a memoirist short novel that I'm trying to get the voice for. I'm, I've been trying for weeks, and I can't somehow, 
I can't somehow do it, but I keep, I keep trying. I keep thinking that I'm almost ready, that I almost have gotten it, but I, I can't seem to quite get it. No, no more details about that one. Well, it's, I don't know if one should talk about things that, that have really uh, so much not, not, not in, in consciousness. Sometimes I feel I understand that, you know, you're led, you're led to write, uh, let me give you an example of a writer who's very intuitive. It's D.H. Lawrence. You all probably have read and, and admired D.H. Lawrence. Lawrence was very intuitive of a writer. He had a quicksilver imagination. He could sit under a tree and write like this in longhand. He could write 300 pages of a novel and not really know what it was about. <laughs> he, wrote, he says in a letter about women in love, I've written 350 pages of a novel and I'm not sure what it's about yet. That's a really, really passionate, intuitive, headlong and impulsive, feverish writer. The opposite of a methodical, Jesuitical, kind of cold-blooded writer is James Joyce. He will say, I'm going to take 10 years to write a masterpiece and 10 years to create a work that will have this structure it will be very much like um, the Odyssey. And he'll structure the different books of the Odyssey. And it's methodical. And he'll work on it very, very carefully for years and years and years. Very different from James Joyce. I mean, excuse me, very different from D.H. Lawrence. And most people are somewhere in between the two where nobody is quite as methodical as James Joyce, he's a writer's hero because he would say things like, I don't have much talent. I don't have as much talent as some of my friends in Dublin, but I am willing to work. Now, I think that's not true. I think he had great talent. He had great talent. But he didn't see himself so much as being quicksilver like, like Lawrence. He didn't write with that rapidity. D.H. Lawrence had such genius, he threw off sparks. And he wrote three versions of Lady Chatterley's Lover. The first one is very interesting. The second one is um, very uh, didactic and, and not quite as good. The third one is the one that was published, and the third one is a, is a work of genius. They're all very interesting, but Lawrence was not able to revise. He could rewrite something completely, but he couldn't revise. Whereas with James Joyce, most of his writing was revision. The, the uh, transcripts or, or the page proofs of Ulysses, uh, you can look at them. He got the page proofs from the printer, and then he wrote in his little spidery handwriting, he did all the revisions and the little, little handwriting all around. And that grew by one third in the, t in, in the proof. And so this is why there are many mistakes in Ulysses. There are many brilliant and obscure things in Ulysses that are intentional, but there are other things that are actually printer's errors. And it's because of the way that, the way that he wrote and I would like to have some combination of the impulsiveness and the joyousness of Lawrence, which is very wonderful writing, and a kind of diligence and Jesuitical, methodical uh, 
discipline of joy, so put the two together. So that when you're writing in a Joycean mode, you always know your final line. You always know where you're going. Now, actually, when Joyce wrote Ulysses, he didn't know exactly that he would end with Molly Bloom in that soliloquy. But he knew, he knew that he was going to be working out the hours of uh, Odysseus going through his day and, and, ending, and ending in the, the early hours of the, of the, of the night, of the dawn. You, you've been a teacher of creative writing, I think, since 1962, actually. It's, it's been some time. Uh, and what kind of advices do you give your students? What are the most common assignments, so to speak? Well, I have two levels of students at Princeton, and they're all really wonderful students. But I have two workshops, and we've, we sit in a circle. And the, what is the so-called advanced students? I'll put quotation marks around that. Uh, let's not tell them that I'm doing that. <laughs> They're the more advanced students. And then the other are the, the, the beginning students. And with the beginning students, I give assignments. With the, with the quote, advanced students, they're so advanced that they're, you know, like young James Joyce, they don't take assignments. They, they, do, their own, they do their own things. They make their own mistakes. But with the young, you know, younger writers, I give them assignments. And they, they come up with brilliant things. Because if you give the right assignment to a, to a gifted write, young writer, he or she can come up with something brilliant. Like I'll say, write one paragraph setting a scene as if for a movie, but then the scene doesn't begin yet. And they come in and they read these brilliant paragraphs of prose that are very tight and dramatic and you know, very exciting. But I'd like to say, I have to say they wouldn't write that if I didn't tell them. <laughs> then another one is a dramatic monologue, very short. I say only one page so there aren't so many mistakes. The shorter you do, the less mistakes you'll make. So they're really <laughs> short. So they come in and, and, and they read them. And then they read them very dramatically and they, they applaud, you know, and then they're kind of showing off from one another and, and they admire one another. And so that works very well. Then another assignment is dialogue. And they come in with two pages of dialogue, and then they, one reads one role and somebody else reads another. And they have these wonderful experiences in the workshop. It gives them lots of confidence. And as the semester goes on, the assignments get longer and more difficult. And so finally, they're doing things at the end. They write a complete short story that turns upon a, an ethical decision. And they use all the powers that they've gathered all semester, the dialogue, the <laughs> monologue, the description, this, that, and the other. And so they actually put all this together, and they write pretty good stories at the end. And, and so the last two or three weeks are their, their, their great work you know, for the semester. And I like to think that they really have learned, and they really have, have come along. And some of them said they never, They've never written any fiction before, but they're, they're good writers. I mean, everyone at Princeton basically is a good writer. Mm -hmm. What is your reward in teaching? Oh, I love the students, and, and it's, it's, it's very enjoyable. I also spend a lot of time on, on important texts. I can spend an hour going over a Hemingway or a Faulkner short, short story. I have a text, I have an anthology that includes the first published stories by great writers. I have a, a story by Carson McCullers when she was 17, John Updike when he was 22, John Cheever is 23, Hemingway when he was like 20, 24 or so. And I tell the students to read these stories and think that these young writers did not know they were going to be great, 
the young Hemingway, when he wrote Indian Camp, had no idea that he was going to be Ernest Hemingway. He was a young writer who was writing from the heart, and he wrote beautifully and brilliantly. And he has a certain way of writing, and I tell my students how he did it and what, you know, what doubts he had and so forth. So we spent a lot of time, about half the time, on, on classic writers and contemporaries. We spent time on Ray Carver, uh, Margaret Atwood is a favorite, Richard Ford, um, mm -hmm. maybe Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, uh, John Cheever. They like John Cheever very much. Uh, these are texts that are contemporaries, and I, I let the students know that, that these great writers were once very young, and they didn't know they were going to be great writers. Speaking of very young, this year it's actually 50 years since you got your first short story published. Oh, wow. My. <laughs> Did you know you were going to be great? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think of myself in those terms at all. No, it's very, very surprising and surreal. No, I really, I write a lot about adolescence because I sort of identify with adolescence. I don't have a lot of confidence or security. And maybe writing the novels is some way of creating a world. And sometimes I have felt very homesick, like for a family. And writing a novel and populating it with people is a way of creating a little family. And so, no, I, I really had no idea. But my first published story was a, was a, a, con a competition that I had won. And I really couldn't believe that I won it, so I, I didn't tell anyone. I thought, well, maybe that's not real or something. So I went back the next day and checked, and it was real. And it was just really surprising. Then I started getting letters like from publishers, and again, it didn't seem very, very real to me. And uh, the first time I, my book was, uh, the first book of mine that was accepted for publication, I was living with my first husband in a place called Beaumont, Texas, which is kind of an anteroom of hell. <laughs> and I don't know whether the state's gone downhill during the Bush administration or has gone uphill, but it was pretty bad at that time. And I sent out this manuscript, and I got this letter back. And I, I opened this letter. And I read that they, they wanted to publish this manuscript. And I actually, I literally couldn't believe it. And then uh, seeing that my vision started to, to <laughs> blotch and I was fainting or something, I thought, well, this, this can't be right. So um, they want to publish this. It seemed just amazing. So I called my husband who was at the college. He was teaching at a, at a college. And I said, I have good news and, and bad news. The good news is that the publishing house wants to publish my novel, but the bad news is that I think I'm having a cerebral hemorrhage or I'm fainting or something. <laughs> and he said, you're just excited. I thought that was really good husbandly advice. He said, you're just excited. I said, oh. Okay, that's what it is. You know, I mean, I take, I take advice from people. I'm, I'm very impressionable. Okay, well, that's, I was just excited. Mm -hmm. okay. okay, so you're open so to I always advice. Remember, but I always remember that that was completely incredible. And so whenever anything of mine is accepted, even now, I saw this little, little frisson or something like, what? It's, this is, um, is this real? You know, I sort of pinch myself. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem real. Mm -hmm.
So by publishing another novel, you still get the excitement. Yes, it seems sort of unreal somehow. Like you say, 50 years have gone by. Well, maybe it's like Alice in Wonderland. I've been through the looking glass or something. And it's, you know, really not 50 years, but like five seconds or something. You mentioned that The Gravedigger's Daughter was an important book for you to, to write. Uh, and in this journal, you mention it uh, in an entry that you one day want to write a book about your grandmother, your paternal grandmother. Oh, did I really have that in there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, but I never was able to write it until my parents passed away. No, because That's you a say, long time ago. Yeah, you say it very uh, explicitly. Uh, I would like to write a novel about these people, beginning with my grandmother Blanche as a girl, say yeah. 16 or 17, yeah, yeah. and somehow give them that life again and see the world by way of them. But how to get the proper distance, the necessary detachment, you say, on? That's very touching. I, I actually don't remember writing that, but um, that's amazing. So yeah, June 25th, 1982. 1982. Well, he's br he's just wonderful. He's 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 not just blackmailing me here. He's actually <laughs> providing some happy moments too. 1982. Well, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I always wanted to write about. Her. She was a really really amazing person, and I think that much of writing an art is commemorative. You know, the ancient Greeks had this idealized art of really one really uh, striking personalities and. Uh, strong faces and physical types. And I think that art is basically um, you know, commemorative in a positive way. Mm. But how much information, I mean, you're basing to a certain extent this book about, uh, upon her life. How much information did you have about her life? I think I had more information subsequent to that. I don't think I knew as much at that time. Basically, to make it very short, my grandmother was a wonderful, very loving and maternal and gracious woman who had a completely secret life that, that we didn't know about and that I didn't really know her uh, because she had been Jewish. Uh, her family had been Jewish. They came from Berlin. I mean, they came from uh, Germany. I'm not sure. I don't think it was Berlin. I take that back. I think they came from a rural area. In, in Germany, they came to upstate New York. And that alone was so bizarre to come to upstate New York, instead of going to Boston or New York and living in a Jewish community, you know, having their own language and their own customs. They came to this truly barbaric part of upstate New York. Upstate New York itself is, is very wild and, and desolate. And they went way off to the western area in an area where they thought that they could just not be Jewish, you know, that they would be Germans, I guess, or, or I don't know what they thought, but it was um, a desperate thing to do, I think, desperate. And the man, uh, my great-grandfather was a grave digger, of course, a Christian cemetery. It's a weird, bizarre way to live. Which he ended his life, actually. He ended his life there because he committed suicide. And it was such a desolate and horrific kind of sad saga that my grandmother, coming from that, that world, remade herself. She recreated herself as, as an American girl. And she was quite attractive. Uh, she does look very Jewish in the photographs, but she didn't seem Jewish. And she didn't ever acknowledge that she was Jewish. I mean, I think she should change her hair, her whole attitude. 
she didn't look to Europe, she didn't look to the past, she didn't think about her father who had committed suicide with a shotgun and, and actually menaced her and, and injured his, his wife. Uh, in the novel, the wife is actually killed. Um, she sort of made the right decision, I think. And she never felt pity about herself in any way. I don't know what her life was. She, she had a secret life. She, did a, she read a lot. She was always reading. And from her, I inherited a love of books. Of course, a Jewish love of, of language and, and books and, and education. Uh, in America, there are different kinds of peoples. And um, there, there is a certain class of people that uh, do not want their children to do as, any better than, than they do. That's a whole burden of uh, Appalachia and Ozark America. And they're white, they're white people. They're white people who are really um, almost lost, because the affirmative action doesn't touch them, usually. They're the kind of lost. There are people whose parents don't want them to do better than they do. But I came from a different stuff because of my grandmother and my father, they wanted me to go to college. But I have, I, have a, I have a writer friend who's probably been in Sweden. I don't think I'll say who he is because he calls himself a redneck. And he actually had a father who abused him and his brother and, and didn't want him to go to college and didn't want him to do better than he did. But my friend did, he's a very, he's a very successful writer, but he had to overcome that. Uh, if you have parents who want you to do better, they're kind of lifting you up. And I was very lucky to have a grandmother and, and parents who were like that. Mm. And your grandmother gave you the first typewriter? She gave me my typewriter. She gave me a love of books. She never talked about herself, ever. All her orientation was toward her family, her, her grandchildren. And I see now that it was a performance of a kind. And she must have been very lonely, mm. I guess. So maybe, maybe, this, maybe she had a woman friend to whom she spoke. She had a marriage that, her, her first marriage to a man named Oates was a complete disaster. And he was abusive. And he was a very attractive Irishman. And he was a drinker. And they say the Irish will break your heart. So he broke her heart. And then she married later for, uh, she married somebody else. And I don't think it was a very, um, passionate marriage. But so she, she led a life that was a mystery, actually. But at the time, I didn't know that. We always think that our parents and our grandparents are, exist only for us. Then when you get older, you realize that they have an existence that predates us. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's sort of obvious, but you don't think that when you're, say, 10 years old. Mm. So they're playing a role of the grandmother or the grandfather. She never really had any other role that I knew of. She, even when she was dying, she would go shopping and buy clothing, and she, she sewed things. Um, she was very loving. Hmm. And she had cancer, but she never talked about herself. And so basically, as she really eluded, she eluded the family. And, I guess I feel I've inherited some of that myself that I would never really, really tell what's deep, deeply in my heart because I would feel that would alienate people. Mm. But if she had had this tragic Jewish heritage where her father commits suicide and her 
you know, and her husband beat her up and so forth. Uh, she would really have alienated many people. You know, you, you make a choice. Uh, you had mentioned uh, backstage that you had read my novel Blonde. Well, Norma Jean Baker is very much like that. Norma Jean Baker made herself into Marilyn Monroe. Uh, she was given the name Marilyn Monroe, but she made herself into that breathy, uh, infantile, very solicitous, sexually alluring, but basically innocent and child, childish, a strange combination of erotic female eroticism and childishness. She made herself over into a being who would please other people. Mm. I see. And then Norma Jean herself was lost and left behind. Mm. And then finally she died. She was only 36 years old. My grandmother was very much like, like Norma Jean Baker, I think. Mm. But would you say that your grandmother is an example of the fact that there isn't necessarily a connection between personal history and your personality then? Well, that's a good question. I don't know how to answer that. I don't really know, and I'm, I'm open, uh, people have questions or any thoughts that people have. I really don't know whether there is an authentic self that is a true and finite and positive permanent self, or whether the self is very malleable and very elusive and very magical and changeable. I don't know. I think it's a good question. A scientist, a neuro neuroscientist may say that the, the self is always changing and we can generate a new personality, maybe they say that. Freud would say no. Freud would say everything is, is predetermined in your first years of life. In America, people tend not to want to believe in Freud. I mean, there's a cheap sort of shallow Freudianism, a cliched Freudianism. But to think that your whole life is, is predetermined by the time you're about six or seven is not an American, uh, it's not a predilection. I honestly don't know. Yeah. I take on very much the co contours of people with whom I'm living. Mm. And if they're happy and positive and energetic, I take on that personality. And I think my grandmother was like that. So, I mean, I really don't know. Did she have a real personality that was lost? Or, or was her real personality this uh, basically different person? That's, that's a question. I never really answered that in, in the novel. I suggest that she did have a personality that was her secret self, but that she didn't regret giving it up. You mentioned Blonde. Let's talk a little about it. What was this, because that book has been a huge hit in Sweden in 2001, and it's a fantastic book. Uh, and I just wondered if you could explain what your starting point was in writing that novel. Yes, I couldn't know exactly what the starting point is, and it's unusual that I can be so specific. I was looking through some portraits, some photographs, and I saw a portrait of a girl of about 16 or 17. She had brunette hair and a sweet smile. She was wearing a little tiny, like, barrette or head, something on her head. And she was very pretty and sweet. She was not beautiful. And she was not glamorous. And I read Norma Jean Baker, like 1941 or, or whatever, 1947 or whatever it was. And this is Marilyn Monroe. And I was stunned. She reminded me of girls I went to grade school with in my one-room schoolhouse. <laughs> she looked like my own mother. She looked like a girl so yearning to please. She's just, she was an orphan. She wasn't, she wasn't even an orphan in the sense that she could be adopted because her mother put her in an orphanage, but the mother never let her be adopted. 
So she had the worst of both. She was an orphan. She was so yearning to be adopted. All the other little girls are being adopted. You know, the par prospective parents who come in and look at the, look at the little girls and all kind of, you know, adopt me. And, and Norma Jean wanted to be adopted, but her mother had a hold on her, and the mother would never let her be adopted. But the mother was often schizophrenic and had to be institutionalized. The mother would not hold her. She didn't have the love of a mother. She had no father. And so the more I, the more I did research into Norma Jean Baker, the more she seemed like my own mother. My mother had been given away, uh, given away by her mother. So she felt uh, essentially very, very alone or lonely, I think. And I really felt the identification was with Norma Jean Baker and my own mother, and that they both became very wonderful. Um, well, my mother was a very generous person. Uh, Marilyn Monroe was very deeply troubled. I think the, 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 the psychological cliche, which I, I hate to use this expression, borderline personality. She was, she was functional, but often she would have relapses where she couldn't, she couldn't function. And if you read Blonde or read biographies of Marilyn Monroe, you know that she was a brilliant, brilliant actress, but she had no confidence. No. She had absolutely no confidence. But we might think of uh, some of her bimbo films, maybe, when we, we think of Marilyn Monroe. But there are films in which she works so hard. I mean, you, you, put, you put so much emphasis in this book on the hard-working woman. The hard work. She was always almost alone among the Hollywood actresses. She was the one who took courses and classes all the time. A contemporary like Ava Gardner or Elizabeth Taylor, um, they took acting very casually, especially Ava Gardner and others. Um, that's sort of like something they did, you know. Marilyn Monroe felt that acting would be her way of legitimatizing herself. She felt that maybe her father would acknowledge her. People would love her. She's always taking classes. She wanted to play Chekhov. She wanted to play uh, a role in a Dostoevsky role. She wanted to play Grushenka in the, in the Brothers Karamazov. People would hear this and they'd laugh at her. She wants to play Grushenka. You know, she's this, this idiot blonde woman. She's always trying so hard. One of the reasons that she fell in love with Arthur Miller was that he was a way of raising her to another level of uh, seriousness. And, she, and I've seen her library that was in New York. It was at Sotheby's. I think it was auctioned off. And she had all these modern library books. And she was really reading and try, trying to, to, to read, you know. Um, it was very touching. She was the one who came to the acting classes at the studio in little high heels and stockings and a little skirt with uh, a white iron blouse that she ironed and laundered. And the others came in slacks, the other who were much more confident that they were beautiful. And she would come in and she would try so hard. And finally, she was a starlet, which meant she had to be sexually available to all these men. And they lived in dormitories. This is not the story of Elizabeth Taylor or Co Co Claudette Colbert, the two tiers of actresses, one with the starlets, who had no rights and no, uh, no, no future except by way of these men. Then the other were the actresses on a higher level, like Elizabeth Taylor. And they were like the royalty. They're the A-list. 
and Marilyn Monroe was always B-list. Even when she was very famous, she was considered like a slut or something that was B-list. She never ever could get beyond that, though she kept trying. She was always trying very hard. So one day, the studio heads perceived that Betty Grable, their blonde bombshell, was getting older. Now, I don't want to think what they meant by that. Now, maybe she's 35 or she's 39 or something. And she's getting older, so they needed a new blonde. So they're looking around with starlets and they're looking at these different blondes and they think, well, you know, this Norma Jean Baker, you know, let's see what she's like. And they sort of tried her out in some movies and they perceived that she was very malleable and eager to please. And one day, they were thinking about what to call her. They wanted to have M.M. was going to be, like, mmm, was going to be the initials. And they're thinking of Marilyn Mason, Marilyn Mansfield, um, Marilyn Monroe, you know. She's sort of sitting there, and so Marilyn Monroe, you know, she's sort of given that name. And when I wrote the novel, I was going to end my novel with that scene. It was going to be like 180 pages, at like a fairy tale, and she's a, she's a beggar maid, and she's going to be a fairy tale, the princess, with the name Marilyn Monroe. And then the reader would know what a disaster her life was after that, that she'd be committing suicide in um, 11 years or 12 years or so. But then when I got to that point in writing the novel, it was so interesting. And uh, she had this tremendous hit in the asphalt jungle. Have you ever seen that movie? She's in it like for eight minutes or four minutes, and it's tremendous. It's a wonderful movie. It's really, really an excellent movie. But right in the middle is this blonde woman, this girl, and she literally runs away with the movie. And so if you see the movie, you'll see that her name is way, way down, and like all the stars are up here, and then her the little Marilyn Monroe is that's way down here. But when they had the previews and at, this, at the premiere, out in the lobby, everybody was saying, who's the blonde? And they were saying, who's that blonde? Who's that blonde? And, and suddenly the producers thought, ooh, wow, who is the blonde? You know? So then on the, on the ads, then they would bring her name up a little, a little more. And it was basically that she became a sensation almost by accident. You know, like one thing would lead to another and then to another, and finally, her breakthrough movie was Niagara. And this is the movie where she, there were these big posters and billboards all around the country. She's lying down, and the Niagara Falls is over here, and there's some sort of elemental force. And I saw, I re, I saw Niagara recently for maybe the third or fourth time, and it really is an amazing movie, and she's really very, very good in it. And so, but all these things sort of happened, they're almost like things that happened to her. And she thought when she made Niagara, she said, well, now they will know that I'm acting because I'm not, I'm not Rose, I'm not this person, I'm very different. But they just thought, well, she's always the same. You know, they never really credited her with being a brilliant actress. I mean, when, when, I, when I read this novel, uh, there's such cross-gender uh, identification. I felt like Marilyn Monroe reading the novel. 
I felt it was me almost because you get so close to her. And the feeling of writing it must have been pretty painful as well, knowing that it's going to end as a tragedy. Yes, I think that I really regretted writing a novel about someone who would possibly commit suicide. Her death is ambiguous. I'm not sure that she really committed suicide. I think like many people who are despondent and really depressed and she couldn't sleep, I think she just took too many pills mm. one night. You know, she couldn't sleep. You take one sleeping pill, it doesn't work. You take another sleeping pill and another one. Finally, you take three, four sleeping pills and you never wake up again. Now, I'm not sure if that's suicide. You know, it's, it's in this really limbo. And, and when, as I approached the end of her life, I was very, very upset very depressed. It was a time when my father was dying of cancer, and I talked to him a lot on the telephone. We had have, we have very touching and profound conversations on the phone. He couldn't hear very well, so if you, met, if you saw my father in person, he would nod and smile. He didn't hear that well. But if you talked on the telephone, he had a special kind of phone, and I could really talk to him on the telephone. So we, we had a whole new relationship in the, in the months leading up to his death, it was on the telephone, and I was writing Blonde. And it was a time in my life that I, I could never do again. I could never do it again. I'm not, that, I'm not strong enough. I don't think I could ever do that again. Is it possible to point to one thing that is the tragedy of Marilyn Monroe? Yes, I think uh, she made a decision at a specific time in her life she was in New York City with, and Arth with Arthur Miller. She had had a miscarriage, and she felt very depressed and, and guilty that she couldn't have a baby. And she was being invited back to Hollywood. She should have stayed in New York and been a, an actress on st in the theater. She'd still be alive today, I think. She, she had a, a place in the actor's studio but she wanted to go back to Hollywood to make money. Um, I guess she felt that she could make money with uh, doing some films. She, was, she, did, she signed up for one movie. I've forgotten the name of it. She never finished it. She was fired. She was taking a lot of drugs. She went back to Hollywood. She was 35 or 36 years old, and they wanted her to still be like Lorelei, Lorelei Lee, whatever her name was, and gentlemen prefer blondes. Um, and she couldn't really do it anymore. She, got, she was very depressed. So basically she died at that point. I think she, she couldn't really deal with Hollywood being exploited in the way that she was being exploited. But I think if she stayed in New York, she might still be alive. If she stayed with Arthur Miller. Mm -hmm. What she, would she have been doing, you think? Stage plays. Yeah. Yes, I think she could have done it. She was taking acting lessons. Mm. Oh, she, she had so little faith in herself. And I guess when somebody's mother has been so um, disappointing, and she did call a man she thought was her father, and he may well have been her father. She called a number that she'd been given, and a woman answered, who was the, her father's wife. And the, the woman went to the, the man and came back to the phone and said, he doesn't, he doesn't want to talk to you. She was already very famous, and he doesn't want to talk to you. You know, you hear that. Um, I think you never really get over it. Mm. And then the father turns into a godlike figure almost. In the novel, yes, he he's becomes like a godlike figure. But I think people who are beloved of their parents really can't comprehend what the whole universe is like if you don't have that. 
It's completely unconscious. Uh, Freud said if you're beloved of your mother, you know, you, know, you have, like, have wings, you know, and that's, I think that's true, mother and father both. I feel that I was very lucky. I had my father, mother, and my grandmother. But Marilyn Monroe really didn't have anybody. So one man after another, and she, she also was very infantile. Her need was endless. You could never fill the emptiness in her heart. So many men tried to, and they could never, they could never really fill that. But speaking of American tragedies, as we're sitting here, it's the public memorial service for Michael Jackson, actually. Are you interested in, in, in this story? Well, Michael Jackson is not unlike Marilyn Monroe. I think there's some many similarities. Many in interesting similarities. I'm not an expert in his music, but he's such an icon. And as I said a number of times, I, to me he's a mystery. I don't know why he would have his face so transmogrified. He probably, at the age of 50, would have been quite attractive as a black man. Um, he looked perfectly attractive as, as a boy and a young man. I mean, I don't know why he started changing his face and becoming more Caucasian and androgynous, so he didn't really look like anybody at the end. He looked like a doll. He had a face that was very, almost like a Japanese mask or something. Mm -hmm. It's very much like a stylized face. It wasn't a real face, and I don't suppose that it had expression. I mean, he probably couldn't frown. I don't know. Everything became so strangely stylized, and I don't know why. I can understand that. Maybe somebody will write a biography of him and explain that. Hmm. I've heard you say several times, or, or saying in newspapers, um, and now in New York Times recently, echoing Nietzsche, I guess, that you consider, consider tragedy the highest art form. Could you elaborate a little on that? Why is that? Well, I do, tra I do consider tragedy the highest art form. I'm, well, the great, I uh, consider, um, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, I think, are tragic works. They're not f formal tragedies, they're, they're epics, but I think they're, they're tragic in many ways. Uh, Odysseus, it has a kind of happy ending, I guess, when Odysseus comes home. But the Iliad is, is quite drenched in blood. They're both very blood-drenched. So our, our great literature begins with these tragic, vast actions. They tend to be the act actions of men, men in a political arena, men at war. And then the Greek tragedies, uh, there is an element, there's some female element there, but again, it's sort of a basic, uh, tragic and epic uh, legends and myths of gods, gods and demigods, and human beings caught up in, in the machinations of gods, which is to say fate. And then the great works of Shakespeare, though he has very wonderful comedies, it's his tragedies that are, that are great works. This tragedy puts human courage and resilience to the test. And we really know how strong we are, or how, 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 how imaginative and resilient we are, and inventive, until we're put to the, that test. So that's one of the reasons I write about tragic actions. Hmm. My grandmother, I thought, perceived um, different ways of dealing with the tragedy of her personal life and she chose to go on an upward uh, path. In America, many people blame their entire lives on the fact that their parents or somebody abused them, or may, they say they were molested by somebody, and they blame 
every failure of their adult life on something that happened when they were eight years old. But my grandmother didn't do that. She basically said, well, you know, that's over with, and I'm going to set my sights on something else. And she wanted me to go to university, and she wanted me to be the person who would continue her life, you know, into, into another level. So whenever I was writing and went publishing, I felt that I would show it to my grandmother, and she was proud of me, you know. It's basically like the family sort of continues in this upward, upward way. In your journal, you mention feminists and male writers who are envious. Uh, their um, lack of acceptance of a woman writer dealing with, with such subjects as you do. But this is 30 years ago. Has something changed in that matter? Absolutely. It's completely changed. I think it's completely changed. When I started writing, you won't believe this. I mean, actually, in the audience, you won't believe this. I had a play in the 1960s, a play that was performed in New York City, and the headline was Detroit Housewife has play in New York City. I was actually, <laughs> I was a professor. <laughs> I was a professor at the University of Detroit. And so Detroit Housewife has play. That would never happen now. Then People Magazine, People Magazine uh, came to University of Windsor. I was a full professor, and my husband was chairman of the department. And this reporter sat in on my classes and interviewed me. And the headline was, Shy Faculty Wife. <laughs> you can't believe it. I mean, I know you're thinking this can't be right. But uh, yes, shy. I opened the People magazine. I said, what? You know, and all my colleagues said, Joyce, they teased me. They said, Shy Faculty Wife. You know, is, you know, shabaha. You know, like nobody says shy faculty husband. You know, <laughs> I mean, I can't believe it. So here I'm writing books, and I'm teaching, and I'm publishing, and so forth. And I'm still the housewife and the shy faculty wife. So, and then for a Saturday review, some reviewer, maybe, I think it was Benjamin DeMott, he said, Joyce Carol Oates. She went to a second-rate university. It was a Syracuse university. And she should leave these big social, big social novels to people like Norman Mailer. You know, big social issues and war. And it was, he was reviewing them. He said, well, this sort of thing should be done by men. Literally said that. And, uh, you know, when you read that, you think, well, either you have to have a sense of humor or you completely <laughs> give up, you know. And I'm sure Margaret Atwood lived through, some of the, she lived through the same sort of thing in Canada. She lived, she was, she's one year younger than I am, but the same sort of milieu. So we've seen it all. And, <laughs> and um, then men sort of came around grudgingly. And there was a time when Norman Mailer, I liked Norman very much, and he, he uh, read my book on boxing, so he invited me to New York. We did something together, and he came out on stage and he said, Joyce Carol Oates wrote a book on boxing. It was, I read this and I thought, I could have written this myself. <laughs> he said, I couldn't believe a woman had written this. He went on and on, and then the audience started laughing at him. And they were like, people were actually laughing at him. He thought, what's so funny, you know? <laughs> I, he never really understood what that, that was actually funny. Mm. And Dick Cavett interviewed me. This is all a long time ago, and people weren't even born yet. Dick Cavett said, you write like a man. <laughs> he says, you're an unusual woman writer. So you write like a man. And I said, uh, which man? <laughs> I, said, I said, you? You? I write like you? 
And he didn't think that was, he didn't know that was supposed to be funny. Said, Which man? You? So anyway, things have gotten much better. Yeah, much better. Much, much better. Mm. What about the cats then? Are they still around at your house? Well, I have one cat, yes. I mean, there's a whole succession of cats. I mean, my whole, my whole life is strewn with the graveyards of cats. I mean, go back to, you know, when I was just a little girl, we had cats, we had chickens, we had, for a while, ignominious, terrible time, pigs. <laughs> I have a memory of my father, who was sort of a city boy, and he really, really didn't like the farm at all. A pig got loose. You know, when a pig gets loose, it's all dirty and muddy. He had to catch the pig. And I remember my father running and tackling a pig and falling down and tackling a pig. And I can't believe I'm revealing this because he was so humiliated by tackling a pig. So all this goes back to uh, a long, long time ago. But your cats, are they? The cats were part of the animals. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I don't have pigs anymore. No. But we always have we always had chickens and then we have cats. Mm. And the cat I've always had a cat. And the cat is my one true friend. As long as you feed a cat, the cat will love you, sort of. Mm. And the cat will purr. Mm. And when nobody loves you at all and all your reviews are devastatingly bad, the cat will just come on mew and, and ask to be fed. And if you feed the cat, then the cat purrs. So the cat and the dog also. I don't have dogs. I'm, I love dogs. And the, cat, the dog and the cat will love you no matter what your, your reviews are. Mm. But, <laughs> but how impressed are these animals by sharing a roof with a world-famous author? Complete, <laughs> completely indifferent. <laughs> completely bored. They yawn. They yawn. And once I had a cat, I'm sorry, she's no longer living. She was... Uh, Christabel, my long-haired cat, and she's actually in some, I put in some of my writing, and so Christabel may be a name that's known to somebody. She was a long-haired, very beautiful calico, and she was sitting in my lap for long periods, like four hours, and if I tried to get up, she would dig in. <laughs> so people said, well, Joyce, how can you write so much and so long? I said, I can't get up, you know. The cat actually will not let me get, she would dig right in. Then if the phone rang, she would look up really annoyed and growl, and she wouldn't want me to answer the phone, so I couldn't be distracted, and she would just dig right in. And I wrote Bellfleur with Christabel in my lap, and I think Christabel's in the novel. Hmm. And there are cats in We Were the Mulvaney's and different yes, novels. Yes, yes, Muffins in We Were the Mulvaney's, hmm. yes. Uh, Muffin was a real cat. If you read We Were the Mulvaney's, Muffin, Muffin was Muffin in real life, and uh, Muffin was exactly like that in the novel. And I, was re I read some section somewhere, and my husband said to me, you're not putting Muffin in a, your novel. <laughs> I mean, you can't do that. Don't put Muffin. He said, oh, this is, no, this is embarrassing. Don't put Muffin in your novel. I said, I'm putting Muffin in my novel. I write in a whole novel to put Muffin in the novel. He said, well, please don't put Muffin in the novel. So he didn't read the novel then. He, Muffin's in the novel. He says, Muffin's in the novel. He didn't know that. Then when they were making a movie, they called me. They were making the movie in Canada. And the director called me one day. He said, all the actors are here. We all want to talk to you. And they want to talk about their characters. And I said, oh, this is so exciting. I said, who's playing? Have you cast Muffin yet? <laughs> And the director said, 
Muffin. So well, we have two cats. <laughs> we have two cats playing Muffin. And I said, um, well, what did, what did two cats? I said, there was only one Muffin. What, what did the cats look like? They said, we have two black cats. I said, Muffin wasn't black. And they said, well, could we change the subject and talk? <laughs> We're calling you long distance from Canada. We'd like to talk about the actors and the roles. I said, well, but Muffin's important. And he said, well, Muffin's not important. Like, nobody cares about Muffin. And also, um, yes, Muffin was a novel. Muffin so a whole novel. <laughs> and you know, if you read the novel, Muffin goes all through the novel and uh, was, it came to exactly the same end. And the, the touching part of the novel is when a man says to Marianne, Muffin is dying, and he says, I'm going to cry. He says, Muffin is not the only, the only one who loves you. <laughs> well, oh, okay, so sentimental. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Muffin's think, not yeah. the only one who loves you, but actually Muffin was the only one who really loved me. <laughs> the Muffin who really, really loved me was my cat. Mm. I think we'll end this part of the session yes, in, in tears. <laughs> in tears, uh, because in a short while uh, it will be possible for you to ask some questions to Joyce Carlotz. We have uh, some time, uh, so prepare yourself. But before that, I think we'll give Joyce Carlotz a great applause. Oh.